It's quiz time. Can you name all five members of the Russian Five? Stay tuned for this answer and more on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. You're invited to the Guild's 87th Annual Luncheon, Artistry and Impact. Taking place on November 8th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, this virtual event will honor the performance careers and education contributions of Harolyn Blackwell, Diana Soviero, and Thomas Hampson. This exciting gala will include exclusive archival performance footage, special appearances, speeches, and musical tributes from individuals including Denise Graves, John Holliday, Catherine Lewick, and Eileen Perez. Tickets start at $75 and are available for purchase at www.metguild.org slash luncheon2021 or by phone at 212-769-7009. We can't wait to celebrate with you. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. If you guess the famed Russian Five consisted of composers Cesar Kui, Alexander Borodin, Mili Balakirev, Modest Mazorsky, and Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, you are correct. Modest Mazorsky sought to create a national school of Russian music free from Western influences. His most notable work, Boris Gudinov, was initially brutally rejected by the board of the Imperial Theatres in St. Petersburg in 1871. However, it went on to become one of the most popular works in the Russian repertoire. I'm Stuart Holt, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, lecturer Jane Marsh explores the history and highlights of this operatic work. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. How nice to be back with you, and thank you very much for attending so that I have a chance to see you all again. It has been two years. Can you believe it? No. It just flits by. There are a couple of things that I want to make clear to you in case you don't know what version of Mussorgsky's Boris Gudunov, that's the real pronunciation of Boris Gudunov, uh, that we're going to see today. Uh, it's important you know this. This is the 1869 version, which was the first version that Mussorgsky uh, wrote for uh, on the on the text of Alexander Pushkin's drama of Alexander of uh, uh, Boris Gudunov. This is without any females, with the exception of three minor characters: the innkeeper, which who, if you're seeing it tonight, you'll notice, also the daughter Xenia and her uh, her maid. These are not considered uh, leading roles. And this production was turned down by the Imperial Theatres because it lacked a major female character. So that is important to know. The other is it is going to be uh, uh, showcased today. The first version always is in a two and a half hour version without intermission. So it's very much like Das Rheingold, the first opera of The Ring. You get yourself settled and you stay in the seat until the opera is over. Um, I think it's important that you know that the uh, 1869 version was, of course, not, as I said, not accepted by the Imperial Theatres, but there was an 1872 sort of a revamp of the first version because Mussorgsky was trying to get, of course, his opera, his first opera, and, and what eventually has become his masterpiece, showcased in Russia. And so he entered and remedied the part of Marina, who is the female character and will not be showcased tonight because we are in the 1869 version, but the 1872 version does remedy the fact that there is, wasn't a major female character. Marina, just so you know, the, to, to flesh it out a little bit, is the uh, becomes the lover of the uh, false Dimitri, known also as the pretender. And I'll get into that a little bit in our clips. Um, but just so you know, it's also what I'm going to do because we're limited on time today. 
I'm going to follow a little bit the, uh, the coronation of Boris and his attitude about becoming the Tsar, the discrepancy about what the guilt that he may feel. We're never quite sure whether he is guilty of having uh, annihilated the young son of Ivan the Great, or Ivan the Terror, actually, terrible actually, uh, in order to become Tsar, or he accepts the, the position because nobody else wants it and then feels guilty because he can't do anything with the country because he inherited a country in despair. You're never quite sure about it, but all of the pressure on him eventually makes him disintegrate. And I'm going to show these scenes so you can see what, what Rene Papa has had to put behind him and digest in order to make this character come alive. But I can tell you that the opera is a showcase for the bass voice, not just the, the um, voice of René Papa, though it's a, a magnificent instrument, and the role of Boris Gudinov. But uh, there are several other basses. Piemann is one of them, the monk in the, in the second act. And there's a scene that I'm not going to show because we're lacking time that's very important. Varlam, who is, the, uh, who is a monk also and who gets, is drunk, and, and you will see him in the second scene. He's played, I think, by um, Speedo Green. And I'm sure he does a magnificent job. But the point being is whoever takes on these roles, it is really an opera that showcases a particular voice category. You have some tenors, of course, and you do have eventually, when we do the sec second version, you have a beautiful mezzo-soprano who is Marina, not seen tonight, as I say. But basically, Mussorgsky was in love with the bass voice. And it started, well, I'll get into the opera in a second, but he... He entered a, a church in Moscow thinking that he could cure himself of alcoholism if he got faith. And he heard the beautiful choruses singing very much like this, and they talk a little bit somehow on a tone, but it's not really a tone, and it's not really talking, but it's also not completely singing. You get some of that in Boris. And it's combined by Mussorgsky with also the operatic use of the voice. So you have a feeling of a theater. He was very interested in theater. And he loved the idea that you could kind of combine this sort of churchy kind of talking with also big operatic singing. And when you hear the whole opera, listen for it. Because every now and then you'll find certain characters, particularly Boris, who will do it not for very long, but suddenly you'll have the feeling he's talking, and then right out of the talking, you'll find him singing. It's a, a nice combination of style, and uh, it belonged particularly to Mussorgsky in the Russian repertoire, but of course other composers have done it in other repertoire. Um, he modeled, Mussorgsky did, the piece after Boris Gudinov by Alexander Pushkin, and that's a big compliment because Alexander Pushkin basically is responsible for the elite Russian language. He was such a genius with the use of words, and he created words on, in his own, just in, out of his own talent. And these words have never gotten lost in the Russian language. It's like great French or great German from Goethe or, 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 or Sartre or whatever. But it is he, he added to the, to the emancipation of the Russian language. So Mussorgsky thought, well, this would be a great model to sort of get an idea of the play. I'll pluck a handful of scenes out of the 25 scenes that, that are in the play. And then I will take those scenes that sort of showcase the main character and the interesting scenes of the story, because it's all based on history, and let the others fall by the side. Tchaikovsky did the same thing with Eugene Onegin also Pushkin, took a handful of scenes out of the, the Pushkin Eugene Onegin and made it into the opera that we know as Eugene Onegin. So Mussorgsky did much the same thing, but what Mussorgsky did, uh, he wrote basically his own libretto. And of course, that's the storytelling element that, that, he, that he composed music to. He got the idea from the Pushkin and then created his own libretto from that. He wanted very much to have interesting rhythms and interesting harmonies. And he was way before his time. This man was a civil servant. He came from a very a rather noble family, and he always felt guilty about that because he thought he was going to have doors open for him because he was a wealthy man, and yet he ended up being a civil servant, and he was an, alcohol, an alcoholic. He had a lot of complicated threads going on inside him, and it took a long time before 
the world really understood what a genius he was. For a long time, Boris was not played on the stage at all. And so when it was not played, then people like Rimsky-Korsakov or Shostakovich decided they'd get their hands on it, perceived that maybe the harmonies were not up to their level. Who did they think they were? And decided to sort of recompose the whole thing. And so there are various editions of those composers of Mussorgsky's piece that are also floating around. But we've come, the way the world changes is interesting. Look what we've gone through, the way the world changes. But I have to say, we've now come back to understanding, first of all, that Mussorgsky was the genius of the group in terms of his own opera. And the first version that we're going to hear tonight wins over them all, even in spite of the fact that Marina is not present. And she, there are a lot of wonderful dramatic mezzos that have become successful with the role of Marina that was in the second version of 1872. But this 1869 is something special, and it's Mussorgsky, long after the fact, is now becoming well-known for that. So we need to applaud him for that. Um, I want to follow uh, the scenes that have to do with Boris's first coronation, as I said before, and then he begins to, to just sort of crumble in each following scene. You're never quite sure, as I said, whether it is guilt, because in fact he killed a young boy in order to become Tsar. Why would they choose Boris as Tsar? Because he was a family member of Ivan the Terrible. Ivan the Terrible was the first Tsar of Russia, and they've had trouble with Tsars ever since, <laughs> literally. And he, uh, he decided that he was going to, uh, to give this, the, the idea of the Tsar to his first son, Fyodor II, who didn't want it. He was somehow lost in a cloud of spirituality. So it normally would have gone to the second son, Tsarevich Dmitri. And oddly enough, Dmitri was playing with a knife and one says had an epileptic fit and happened to cut his own throat. <laughs> well, it's not impossible, but it's highly improbable. And the next in line, according to Fyodor II, was Boris Godunov, who was a family member. So, of course, Boris, not being a politician from the get-go, was always accused throughout the rest of his existence of having done away with Dmitri, the young boy, in order to become the czar and then couldn't do anything with the country because he was an inexperienced man. Of course, the country was probably so disheveled that nobody, even an experienced man, would have had trouble with it. But he felt enormous pressure and enormous guilt, and it eventually makes him disintegrate, and we will see those scenes. I mean, he literally becomes, he hallucinates and becomes mad. It's a fabulous part, because you can sing like crazy with it. It's not just a character part. It's a part that has glory in it, and you can also do some fabulous things. There's nothing like dying on stage or going crazy. You know, it's usually a character that does that, but this is a central and main part. What may interest you to know is that Boris was premiered for the first time at the Metropolitan Opera. Toscanini conducted, and it was in Italian. Why was it in Italian? Because at that time, the administration of the Met was Italian. And it, we, of course, we were everything was behind curtains and behind, uh, you know, locked doors. You, the, the Russian repertoire was not prevalent in the um, the Western world. And when I started singing Tatiana, I've always sung it in in Russian, but I can tell you it was showcased at the Met at the time that I was learning it in Russian to sing it in Russian. It was showcased in English. And it's only been since 1990, I can tell you, when the curtain fell, the Iron Curtain, that the Russians were allowed to come more prevalently over to the Western world. And now it's only done in Russia, which it deserves to be, you know, and it isn't always done by Russians in Russian either. As I say, it's historically based, this piece. Just, just to summarize it, and then we'll start, start to get into our clips. Ivan the Terrible was a terrible czar, but a very a stringent czar. He dies, wants to give his son Fyodor II the, the czarship, 
and Fyodor is a spiritual man and ha won't ha have anything to do with it. He suggests Boris, but literally, legally, it should go to the younger son, Dmitri, called Sarevich Dmitri, who strangely dies, the young boy, five years old or something, and Boris is the next in line and becomes the czar. And that begins turmoil more than ever in Boris's life. Now, Boris was a wealthy landowner, so he had noblesse and certain status. So in terms of inheriting a position of being a czar, he was used to a noble world. But he wasn't used to a, to a political noble world. And he had great trepidation about really accepting the czarship. Well, that makes you think, well, then why would he kill Dmitri in order to become czar when he's not sure that he wants to be czar? And this hovers throughout the piece. You're never completely sure in history or in this piece of, of Mussorgsky's whether Boris is really guilty of having killed a young boy or even of, of opportunism, in other words. So uh, uh, this, but, it, but the pressure of it all and the gossip and all of that begins to wear at him. And we have a couple of scenes where he literally hallucinates, and they're fabulously written by Mussorgsky. They're the wonderful scenes that you see with people of the past, like, like George London, who would suddenly, you know, all these manic uh, uh, kinds of, of expressions with the arms and, and voice. And he was so wonderful, uh, uh, George London was, and other wonderful Russian, uh, um, George London, of course, was American, but wonderful Russian. Uh, and in this case, we have a German uh, who's going to play the part this evening. People, basses that are capable of singing the part and acting it and understanding the Pushkin, Russian, and also understanding Mussorgsky's take on the Pushkin. So we, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a part that I would love to do if I could just be a bass. <laughs> <laughs> it's like singing Nessun Dorma. When you sing Nessun Dorma, somebody said to me the other day, who's a soprano, you've never heard Nessun Dorma like I can sing it. This was a female. Every woman gets, you know, like, it's like singing a tenor aria in your living room when nobody's looking. <laughs> it's the same thing with a part like this. You want to sing it. Um, I think it's important that you know that um, this opera is absolutely considered a masterpiece. It took a long time before it was considered a masterpiece. It is a masterpiece, and it is considered more of a masterpiece than even great uh, composers like Rimsky-Korsakov and Shostakovich have done with it. Uh, that suddenly Mussorgsky is coming to his own, and it took a long time because it was suddenly just shelved. Nobody paid any attention to it, and suddenly people have begun to realize how the world turns when it turns, certain parts of it suddenly get light. Well, Mussorgsky got a little light. And it suddenly is being played around the world, and aren't we glad? We are in 1598, and we're in Moscow. Boris has had trepidation about being the Tsar, as I told you. And he, the Strozzi police, the Strozzi police are basically units of a firearm team. They're the police of, of Russia in Moscow. Now, Moscow is real Russia. This piece, by the way, was premiered in St. Petersburg, which is much more of a European kind of a town than Moscow is. Moscow is the heart of Russia. We are in Moscow at the moment. This is where Boris was, was uh, had his coronation. He doesn't, he doesn't feel really, and he's going to announce this to the public, that he's qualified to become czar. The Strelsi police have announced to the entire assembling crowd and populace of Russia that they should encourage Boris to accept the responsibility to become czar. So we open our first clip with an idea of Boris fearful, shaking in his boots, but saying, I accept the offer to become czar. Let's watch.
Uh, well, I tell you quite frankly, I chose this because one, it has super titles on the on the uh, front of it, so that you don't have to read them in your uh, in your handouts um, while you're trying to watch a film. These are you're right; it is a film, and that's another reason I chose it because you get a chance to see the topography, and you really have a feeling of this of the sense and, of and the taste of of the Russian society, particularly at that time. There is about a, a third uh, reason, and that is these singers who are singing were Bolshoi singers. At that time, and up until 1990, quite frankly, the government plucked choice individuals and honed them. They worked every day with people who were sponsored by the government, and the idea was to be able to show the outside world how gigantically wonderful the Russian singers were, and they were. They knew what they were sure. You've got some that, you, that are not appreciated by some of us and others that are. That's life. But basically, these singers were trained and really worked with. Look at that bass voice that you've heard, basically a bass baritone. But he, I mean, he carries all that weight right up to the top. And with a sense of authority and accomplishment, that has to be honed. That has to be used. And so I wanted to make a point about the Russian Bolshoi opera, which at one time was the fabulous opera of, of Russia. And when it folded, and I don't know, a re refrigerator salesman became the head of the Bolshoi opera when the curtain, the Iron Curtain fell, was an opportunity for the Marinsky. And the Marinsky then rose. It was always an interesting opera house, but it became the opera house of Russia. And now the Bolshoi is beginning to come back because Gergiev is also taking over the Bolshoi and helping and so forth and trying to get it so that it works. But everybody's gone through a difficult time. But at that time, it was a very difficult time in Russia. But it was an artistically affluent time where the government wanted to make a point to the outside world. And so you will find the next bass voice we're going to hear is Payman. Payman is a monk in the Chudov Monastery. And he is writing his own take on the history of Russia up to now. 
And in the midst of this, he's been writing all night, a young novice by the name of Grigori wakes up and goes to Piman and said, I've had horrible dreams. I, I don't know what's the matter with me, but I dream terrible dreams. I've accomplished nothing in life. I have, I have nothing. I've not, I'm not, I've, I've not experienced glory. Tell me about what happened with this Tsarevich Dimitri. So Piman said, well, I saw him after he was dead. The body did not, did not uh, decompose at all three to four days afterwards. There was like a, 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 a radiance that emulated from this body. There was something otherworldly about it. And you know, he says to, to Grigori, he'd probably be your age, whereupon you see Grigori go, oh. So that is the beginning of the story. Grigoria decides, without telling Pima, of course, that he's going to flee from the monastery and assume and rush to Lithuania, get in touch with all these forces in Lithuania and Poland, and it's going to get strong, and he's going to have a whole court of people uh, backing him up that he is really Dmitri, and he should be the czar. And by God, in history, he does become the czar. After Boris is gone, for one year, from, 18, from 1605 to 1606, Dimitri, who is nobody, is, is promoted to being czar and then killed. People know that he is, I'm jumping a gun a little bit here uh, in terms of the story. People know that he's what they call the pretender. Instead of saying the false Dimitri, they sometimes call him the pretender. It's all the same person. Somebody who's doing something and trying to be something that he's not. And uh, at any rate, uh, without jumping the gun, he fl flies off and goes to Lithuania and tries to get forces to help him become the next czar and get rid of Boris. And he doesn't do it specifically. Boris does it to himself. Boris is just... he's people giving little tidbits of gossip and you can see that it just makes him disintegrate and we're going to see those scenes they're very important scenes of course they're important scenes within the opera that lead up to these scenes I'm going to show you but I want to show you the annihilation of Boris from his coronation to the end of his life and I think that's important so you can see what the story does to him because it is the title character Boris is the title character we are in the Chudov monastery Dmitri wakes up after Piman has written his eulogy about, about what's going on in Russia and says, I have not experienced glory. And we get the whole litany of, of Piman. And you, I want you to notice the voice. This is a much darker voice. It's a bass voice. The, ba the bar bass baritone we just heard had a little bit of a lighter color, but still you could call him somebody who could sing bass roles. This is nothing other than a bass. This is a bass that we call a black bass. And it's very important to understand how this fits into the whole Russian psychology because Russia is the land of enormous voices. For a long time, they didn't have a whole lot of sense of style because they weren't allowed to have much experience with the Western world. And so they did their own repertoire and did it well. But Mozart, Verdi, and some of the uh, Verismo, they had to find their way and see how they, and they're still doing it, how, where they can fit in. But they do fit in. They just needed to have an idea of experience. But the sizes of the voice and the darkness of the voice, even with sopranos who sing light repertoire in Russia, you have a feeling of something that is always a little dark. They like that sound. That and a little bit of a metallic sound. I'm saying this because I want you to have an idea of what to listen for. Uh, you're not going to hear a whole lot of sopranos, but you will hear the next bass. Uh, Gregoria then takes the, 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 the uh, reins in his own hands, and we don't see Piman for a while. And Gregoria then rushes off. Let's watch. А мой покой бесовский мечтание тревожило и враг меня мутил. Мне снилась лестница крутая, вела меня на башню. С высоты не виделась Москва. 
Хотелось мне тебя спросить о смерти Димитрия Царевича. Ты, говорят, в то время был в угличе.
напомнить о шребе несчастного младенца. Отшельник темной келье, Здесь на тебя донос ужасный пишет, И не уйдешь ты отсюда людского, Как не уйдешь от Божьего суда. She'll love it when, when he moves over, she goes, boom, 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 I mean, he has these are little things, but you will notice also he uses certain instruments to set up modes of expression, you know, with, with the, the wind instruments, or he'll have a heavier set of instruments, the strings or something. He has, a, he had a wonderful, he had taste, and he had a wonderful sense of proportion in being able to express uh, the moods of at such an enormous theme. But I can tell you, just between you and me, this piece is called Boris and the Chorus. Because, and you will see this tonight, uh, Stephen Wadsworth, I'm sure, has done a masterful job. You know, Stephen's also at Juilliard and has, has to do with the productions there, and he's had a great deal of experience in running spoken theater and also running uh, opera theater. And he did the production of this piece, I think it was 2010, am I right? Mm -hmm. At any rate, he, uh, he has offered uh, us all a sense of what he can do with enormous masses of people on stage. This is not easy at all. You know, there's some directors who are just good at sort of positioning people, and they really don't direct very well, but they just get a nice stage picture. Uh, Stephen does more than that. But this piece has huge crowds in it. It's part of the piece. And you have to sort of work that into the theme. Now, I want to say this man is certainly a dramatic tenor. In this piece, he doesn't have as much to sing as he does in the revised version of 1872, because he has a whole scene with this new edition of, of Marina, who is a dramatic mezzo. They have a very interesting sort of elite thing where he pretends he's somebody noble and she is somebody noble and they have this affair and it's all done with the use of fans and it's all, I mean, it's stylized, it's fabulous. Uh, that doesn't exist here, but he has enough to sing, so it more certainly more than I'm showcasing this evening. But in the revised version, he has a lot to sing because he has two more scenes that have been added. I just want to say that in case you ever get a chance to see the second of uh, the revised version. We now are getting into a scene where Boris is first going to lose control of his senses a bit. He enters the scene and he wants very much to console his daughter Xenia, who has just lost her fiancé because her fiancé has died. And he has all good intention to try and comfort her in some way. At the same time, he wants to call his son, also called Fyodor the first, not the second, uh, as with Ivan the Terrible. Uh, but he is, he's belabored with the fact that he cannot change the country of Russia. No matter what he does, everybody complains to him. Of course, he's an overly sensitive man anyway, because people are gossiping behind his back that he's probably also a murderer. This is not light pressure on someone, whether they're guilty or not. And so he, he comes into the scene downtrodden and sad. And it's almost like he doesn't even hear his daughter. And he doesn't really, he, you do see his son, but somehow you don't see his son until he dies. And that's at the end. But his good intentions are there. And then he goes into a whole soliloquy of, of, uh, where he's alone. And this, you will keep seeing a, a close up. You saw it particularly in the first clip I played of a man by the name of Swiski. Shkriski is uh, one of the boyars, a noble administrator, expensive landowners. Boris knows them because he's one himself. And this man is always carrying information around. 
And he comes to Boris and says, you know, there's somebody pretending to be Dimitri. Oh, my God, says Boris. He can't stand it because the fact that anybody would say that they're Dimitri and he knows that Dimitri's gone. So that erects the whole fact of whether he is or isn't. And then you begin to wonder whether he's maybe guilty. We're never sure. There's always these little inklings of whether he might be guilty, Boris, and then he's not. And maybe it's just that he's hallucinating. We're never sure. And that makes the piece actually quite fabulous because you're left not knowing. At any rate, he comes in and announces this to Boris and sends Boris almost over the edge. And he has a whole scene where he hallucinates. It's called the clock aria. And you, if you ever see concert versions of Boris Skudinov, where just there's one Boris, they often sing this scene. Uh, he, he, he doesn't know quite what to do with himself. And actually, the scene is self-explanatory. So I think we should just watch. Let's watch. Страшная рана сияет, 
that I talked to you about, and he announces that there is a man who is pretending to be Dimitri, and they all saw Dimitri as a young boy, and the body did not decompose, and there was a radiance, and so they know that there's a pretender. They also know that the pretender's gotten an enormous army of a force to back him up, to sort of swoop him into a powerful position. And this is all disclosed in our next clip uh, to Boris, who is willing to hear all of it until they start? He starts talking about the fact that uh, there's a chance that maybe it wasn't the young boy at all. Maybe it was some other boy, and that Dimitri maybe still lives. And that begins to send Boris completely over the edge. And and he then comes into the room trying to get this spirit away from him. And the, all of the boyers, all of the administrators, people who make decisions in Russia at that time, see him in this state. He gathers himself together, but then he begins to fall apart again. And he gathers his son and asks, because he realizes that he has such pressure on him that it's killing him. And so he's going to die in this scene. He wants his son to realize that he is preparing him, even in spirit, if only in spirit, to accept the role of the czar. And you see, we see him die on stage. It's a fabulous scene. Where be, I want to play the whole scene, so I'm not going to say any more. Let's watch. <laughs>
like this. The only thing he, he didn't do here is die and he does in the last scene. He comes in going, continuing this scene, having the, all the boyers, all the court is there, they've been warned that he's hallucinating. And he comes into the scene, shoo, shoo, and he's imitating what he just did. But he gets his son to gather with him and he finally sends all the boyers, everybody off the scene and has a touching scene on the floor like that with his son and dies. That's really pretty much the difference between this scene and the last scene. So I'm going to give you all about five minutes to get across the street if you're going to the opera, because it begins at seven and we all have to be in our seats. And I send you love and kisses and thank you and forgive me, but I'll make it up to you the next time. That was Guild lecturer Jane Marsh exploring the inner workings of Mazorsky's Boris Gudinov. The production, with René Papa in the title role, will be seen in cinemas worldwide, live in HD, on October 9th, 2021. For more information, visit metopera.org. Make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on all your favorite social media platforms to keep up with all things opera. I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.